This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut. Opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere starting November 2nd. Welcome to the Film Comet podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, the editor-in-chief of Film Comet. Today is Halloween, and in honor of this important national holiday, we are going to do the only sane thing and talk about ghosts. There are plenty of ghosts at the movies to talk about, but we're going to start with an especially haunting run in 1940s Hollywood and go on from there. For this spooky discussion, I was joined by Imogen Sarah Smith, critic and author of the Phantom Light column in Film Comment, and Michael Koreski, director of editorial and creative strategy at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. We each brought in a couple of movies to talk about, and here's our conversation. Ghosts, it's, it's almost a wonder that we haven't talked about ghosts yet on the podcast because uh, it's just such a fertile technique uh, for filmmakers to draw on and just, you know, wraps around so many different pieces of mythology and history and, you know, cultural obsession. Um, I think we've sort of been circling around it as we've been just pre-talking uh, about ghosts in the 40s, especially in Hollywood in the 40s, and why it seemed such a perfect time for them and why they seem to be cropping up with some regularity. Why is that? Well, I was also thinking as I was was preparing for this about trying to come up with examples early of earlier films before the 40s, because it seems like cinema is inherently a kind of ghostly medium. And in the in the early silent years, you see a lot of people using techniques of having sort of figures materialize and dematerialize and, um, you know, suit using double exposure and superimposition and so forth. But it's rarely actually, I had trouble thinking of any movies that are actually built around ghosts, even though I pulled out this quote that I love um, from the very first screenings, Lumiere projections in 1895. And a journalist who saw them said, with this new invention, death will no longer be final. The people we have seen on the screen will be with us moving and alive after their deaths. So this kind of idea that when you watch old movies, you're watching dead people moving around, you know, it's sort of there from the beginning. But yeah, other than sort of comedies in the 30s, Topper and, you know, right. Blythe Spirit, it really starts to be in the 40s that you get these movies built around ghosts. I mean... People always say after the after wars, there's an upsurge of interest in spiritualism and people wanting to communicate with the dead, you know, contact the dead. But it also seems connected with the sort of upsurge of period movies in the 40s and the whole kind of gaslight melodrama and gothic melodrama and, you know, the... the obsession with flashbacks. It, it, it seems to just be a time when cinema is really, really interested in the past. Yeah, no, I was thinking a lot about it in conjunction with David Bordwell's recent work on 1940s narrative and how it sort of changed 
film. And um, I was going back and reading some of the things um, that he was writing. He, he, he often, or he has used a term called deep space sound, which is a really interesting term. And Rick Altman's also written about this, which kind of gives you the sense, it's kind of a post-Wells thing, but it gives you the sense of this completely unified visual and oral experience. Um, and it ties so much into this idea of flashbacks, memories, ghosts. And there was something going on, yes, in these films. And I think they're almost always black and white films in which there is a kind of like pursuit of this um, almost like abstract plane of existence. And, and, and the war probably just exacerbated that. It's interesting to look at films that were pre or during war as opposed to films that were post-war. A movie that you had recommended to me, um, The Amazing Mr. X, is uh, 1948, I believe. It's yes. kind of an amazing film, but it's definitely a post-war trying to communicate with those who have passed um, film. But then, you know, you see this approach. You, it, it's not just um, in films that are literally about ghosts. And that's what I find most interesting. Like, in fact, the films that I've chosen to talk about today are kind of ghost stories. But I think what makes a ghost story great is the ambiguity, right? I mean, you have to have some sort of ambiguity of what you're watching or hearing actually is a ghost or not. Um, but they, even films like The Magnificent Ambersons is a type of a ghost film. Um, the Picture of Dorian Gray is a type of a ghost film. Isle of the Dead, um, Seventh Victim, Ghost Ship, you know, the Luton films. These are all films that have a complete spirit to them that if it's not literal, it's there. And it's a mood, I think. I know, Michael, you and I have often talked about our love for this particular mode of 1940s cinema. And it's, it's this hushed kind of melancholy, eerie, but very romantic, the sense of longing, the sense of, of this total mood of, of a sort of ethereal, you know, being somehow outside of time or wanting to somehow reach across time. And... I completely agree that you you find this bleeding into a lot of films that don't actually have a supernatural element. And in film noir, which would be The Amazing Mr. X and uh, something like Nightmare Alley, then you get this this um, sense of people actually, you know, con artists preying on this desire that people have and creating fake, you know, ghosts. And The Amazing Mr. X has them doing this in, an, in a really cinematic way where they're actually using sort of special effects to fool this woman into thinking that her her dead husband is communicating with her. And it's, you know, it's a scheme to try to get money. But um, that, there's where you get the kind of cynical end of this. But that mood and and certainly Amberson's, this, this overwhelming mood of sort of regret and nostalgia seems to be a really powerful Thing in that decade. And there's such a, it, and it's such a common thread in terms of the experience of watching and hearing these films that I did start to wonder and even look for if, if there was writing particularly on the sound recording devices themselves. Obviously, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're more than a decade past the advent of sound in Hollywood and everything, the factory, the dream factory is in full force and everything's working at a very high level, but also there had to have been a choice in terms of performance, right? So I'm very interested. I would love to see notes or, or some sort of behind the scenes detailing of direction given to the actors to speak in a certain way. And I'm just fascinated by this. This, this is as true of, it's 
of It's a Wonderful Life as one of the films that I'm going to talk about or with Picture Dorian Gray or The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, that it seems like the actors are directed to kind of speak as though from some sort of profound well of sadness or melancholy, right? So and I, I almost thought like, should we try to do that in this podcast? Like, <laughs> should we should should we speak in a very particular way? It's almost as though my life were flashing before my eyes. I, and I was like, what do I have to do to my voice to actually make that happen? Because it's such an, it's so uniform. I think we also need to bring in a theremin <laughs> right. Yeah. There are some theremin also in the movie that, that I'm going to talk about. Yeah. I, I mean, just just thinking about uh, you know all, all of this together, the the idea of the mood and the nostalgia, and also it being wartime. Uh, you know, it made me think of another thing that kind of fascinates me about ghosts in the '40s and also later on, that they kind of they exist to like express emotions that were too big to express. You know, during life <laughs> or, or, or just were never expressed during life. So it's this weird, like, you know, end of, of repression that then goes on for eternity. <laughs> so you're kind of punished almost in, in this sense for, for these, these feelings not coming out. And during war, I mean, I, I feel like World War II, you know, it just was like the most traumatic possible entrance into modernity that you could have. Yeah, well, I was thinking, um, especially with one of the films that I wanted to talk, to talk about, The Uninvited, about the way that a lot of these films, it could sort of work with or without the ghost. I mean, the ghost is really just pushing a melodrama about sort of the mysteries of the past and the way that the past haunts the present, the way that the past won't go away. You're just making that what is usually sort of an allegorical or metaphorical sense of being haunted into a literal sense of being haunted. And that's why there's this kind of bleeding between the films, whether they actually have a ghost, don't have a ghost, or exist in some kind of ambiguous state in between. But what I have, am also fascinated by with ghost movies is that they can they can represent so many different things. I mean... They can represent be, represent a sort of grief that is too big to, you know, if you cannot get over losing something and, you know, you, you kind of conjure the presence of the person who is lost. They can represent this kind of romantic, you know, yearning for something that's unattainable and you get these kind of impossible romances across time. Um, they can represent fear, you know, the, the fear of some of something, you know, existing in some... Uh, dimension beyond ours that you therefore can't really fight in any straightforward way. I mean, so they can they can be represents representations of sort of rage and revenge, or you know, and and the fear of death, the fear of the dead, or you know, they can also exist in this kind of comic space where somehow there's something farcical about the idea that there are these you know figures that that don't have to follow the same rules that um, you know mortals have to follow so they just can take so many different kinds of stories and kind of push them onto the next level yeah. and sometimes within the same film right I mean um, the ghost of mrs. Muir is a good example of a film that I I, I I think kind of starts in a somewhat humorous way it seems almost like a blithe spirit um, spirit to it and then by the end it's this kind of grand tragic romance of this impossible love and I remember being very overwhelmed by that film emotionally um, but then even something like It's a Wonderful Life which you could say it's uh, maybe it's about angels more than ghosts but it's also a very very sad um, 
uh, film that you that many people feel the need to revisit every year because it has this rejuvenating cathartic quality. But that's a film that when the supernatural element shows up, it's constantly negotiating tonal registers between um, absurdism and tragedy. And it's a film about seeing an alternate version of your own life, which is another sort of role that that's another sort of type of, of ghost story. I mean, you know, in a way, something like Ghost Story, David Lowry's film from last year, it sort of also plays with this idea of the future and sort of ha- being somehow outside of your own life and, and ex- seeing it from these different temporal spaces is something like what you're getting in It's a Wonderful Life. And it's also something that Henry James does in, you know, who wrote some of the most fascinating ghost stories and something like The Jolly Corner. He's a, the ghost in that is actually this embodiment of the life that this man didn't have. And he's sort of pursuing his own ghost, which he feels is inhabiting this space that he has left. And that's, you know, sort of similar to what's going on in It's a Wonderful Life. And of course, I, I, we have to give um, a shout out to the ultimate ghost movie that is maybe not about ghosts at all, which is Vertigo. Um, I, I think that it it's a film that's haunted all of film history. It haunts critics to this day. It haunts anyone who sees it. It haunts my childhood. Um, but it's an interesting film because it's a ghost story where there is no ghost. And it's about two people who are extremely haunted by the memory or perhaps the reality of someone that they've lost or someone from, in, in, in Madeline's case, it's someone that she's perhaps invented from a very long time ago. In Scotty's case, it's someone who's very, very real, but is not the real person that he thinks that she is. It's, I mean, it's obviously a very complex film and it haunts the viewer as though it's a ghost story, though you can't put your finger on what it is. And it has an element that's very, I was thinking is very common, especially in a lot of these 40s ghost movies we're talking about, which is portraits and the relationship between a, a ghost and a portrait which seems to come back to that kind of cinematic quality of an image of somebody being haunting. And there are a number of ghost movies. The Amazing Mr. X is one. Sylvia and the Phantom, which is another film that I wanted to talk about today, is another in which, in which the ghost actually sort of comes out of a portrait. And the, the movie all starts with this girl being in love with this portrait of, a, you know, someone from 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And... And then there's this very interesting Portuguese movie, The Strange Case of Angelica from 2010, in which, you know, um, this photographer is asked to make a portrait of a young woman who has just died and then becomes haunted by this image that she's taken, which then starts to sort of appear as this apparition kind of flying through the air. So that idea of the photograph and a ghost are very close together. They're both an image of a person without the actual physical presence of the person. And there's such a great cinematic technique of using portraits to represent that kind of overpowering quality that someone can have who is absent or in some way not real. Yeah. Well, this seems like a good time maybe to segue into one of our portrait films, perhaps. Oh, then maybe I should start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The first film that I want to talk about is Portrait of Jenny. 1948, um, directed by William Dieterle, who is was in a, he was a Hollywood workhorse that people might not know as much about these days. Though he did direct um, a Best Picture winner, he directed The Life of Emil Zola, which is a very good movie. Um, he also directed The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the 39 version. He directed The Devil and Daniel Webster, which is a fantastic 40s ghostly film that everybody should see. It's 
probably that's a film that also negotiates red, tonal registers. Um, it's actually kind of a frightening film. Um, is there any movie that doesn't have a ghost from the phone? <laughs> it starts to <laughs> that, feel that's that the way. harder thing. Um, we'll have to think, we'll have to get back to you on that. Maybe pinky. <laughs> um, so yeah, portrait of Jenny is truly one of the most haunting films that I've ever seen. And I, just love revisiting it every time I watch it, which includes last night. I went to bed, you know, I, I, or slumberland, I should say, after having watched it and just kind of like <laughs> drifted up peacefully and happily after being um, ensconced in its um, hypnotic, absorbing rhythms. So it's it takes place in New York in, during the Depression in the 30s, and Joseph Cotton is a struggling artist. His name is Eben Adams, and he's... Um, He's looking for commissions. He, he's basically doing landscape portraits. He's painting flowers. And Ethel Barrymore is this, of course, imperious art collector guru type who encourages him. And she buys the flower because it's, it's very, very straightforward. But she says, there's something more inside you. I can feel it. And um, so, yes, it's going to be a story about a muse. And the muse happens to be a very strange young woman that he meets while in Central Park in the snow it's 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 very wintry and there's this very strange effect that the film does where it casts this almost canvas like um coating over over the beginnings of scenes um especially when they're in central park when so it's all snow but then there's like you can almost see this kind of crosshatch um pattern on the screen and the score is uh dimitri tiomkin conducting debut c themes sometimes with a theremin <laughs> um, and it's extremely eerie and it's extremely beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 and it's not just Claire de Lune. It goes, it kind of digs a little deeper. Afternoon of a Fawn. Afternoon of a Fawn. the one that really going up makes and that down. movie to <laughs> yeah. me. And then there's Girl with the Flaxen Hair sometimes, which is so gorgeous, but it's really, it creates this all encompassing enveloping mood. So Jennifer Jones plays the titular Jenny. Um, she, he meets her in the park one day, but the strange thing is that she's, a child at first. Jennifer Jones is in her 20s at this point, but she's playing, I'm, I'm guessing, like a 10 or 11-year-old, and she's also wearing a kind of this oversized bonnet-like hat that look, and a coat that's very clearly from an earlier era. And he's sort of taken by her. He's sort of entranced by her, and who wouldn't be because the film is so entrancing that you believe it. And what happens is, not to go into too much detail, but what happens is every time he runs into her again and again, she is a little bit older, and more has happened in her life, but it's happening at a much faster pace than it's happening in his life. So he'll see her a week later, but she's you know, five years older and she seems to forget where she came from. And there's, she's, she's, she sings this very odd song. Where I come from, nobody knows. Yes. And, and, and it's one of those things where like you, it's not synced, the sound isn't synced and she's walking in shadow and you think, oh, that's a mistake, but it clearly, it has such an effect on you as a viewer that she's not actually mouthing the thing that she's singing. It's a very strange song. And, um, and there's also the weird disconnect for the fact that this grown woman is playing this child. So she kind of emerges onto the screen like a wraith. She, she's, she's, on, she's on ice skates in Central Park and she moves up into the camera and the sun is gorgeous. It's kind of blazing behind her and it creates this silhouette around her. And the, just the mood and the atmosphere that this movie creates around these New York locations. There's also an early morning walk past the New York Public Library. And, and of course, as I said before, she's speaking in these almost whispered tones where you're just kind of, it's like the movie is beckoning for you to lean forward and listen. And it becomes a sort of a, like what you were saying before, Imogen, sort of like a um, almost tragic time 
time will not let these lovers be together story as it turns out that you know she is in fact a woman who has died many years earlier and but he believes that if he can retrace steps of around the time of her death he can save her so it's 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 really a, it's it it takes itself seriously which is wonderful i mean it starts with euripides and keats quotes like one <laughs> after the other at the beginning of the film um and it's really a story about time kind of folding in on itself and they never use the word ghost in the film nobody says jenny's a ghost the word doesn't come up but there's really no other way of explaining it so by the time she's you know a woman in her mid twenties after having graduated college, she's like fully become this, um, this woman and this muse. And it's all about the creation of this portrait. And when you finally see the finished portrait, borrowing a page from the picture of Dorian Gray from a few years earlier, um, Albert Lewin's film, it is in full color. It's a black and white film with, with this one color shot. It's, it's really, um, I, I can't, I can think of another word other than spellbinding. It's a, it's a quite an experience and, um, it just creates a dream state and, it, again, it's not a scary horror film, but it gets into your bones in a way that maybe scary, scarier films might not. This podcast is supported by IFC Films, presenting Wildlife. Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal star in actor Paul Dano's directorial debut, based on the novel by Richard Ford. USA Today raves Wildlife is exquisite, with Mulligan giving an awards-worthy performance that crackles and flares. Wildlife opens in New York and Los Angeles on October 19th, in theaters everywhere, starting November 2nd. Well, from one, one picture to another. So I wanted to talk about The Uninvited, um, which is maybe a lesser known film, but, but absolutely falls into this category and is one of, I think, the, the best sort of fairly straightforward ghost movies and also not. Um, it's from 1944. It's, uh, it was the directing debut of Lewis Allen, who was English. He'd come from the theater. Um, it was made in Hollywood at Paramount, but set in England, um, like so many of these kind of gothic melodramas at the time. Um, Lewis Allen, it's kind of interesting. His films um, seem to, to fall into very, very different, some very, very different categories, but he also directed one of my favorite gaslight melodramas, So Evil My Love, with Anne Todd and Ray Milland. Great title, great movie. Also has a portrait, no ghosts exactly, but really uh, dark sort of story about seduction and betrayal. And but I but that's for another podcast, I think. <laughs> um, but the, so the uninvited, you know, as I say, starts out with a fairly kind of straightforward. Uh, Ray Milland and Ruth Hussey are, are brother and sister. They they're. They're urban, they're kind of, you know, sophisticated modern people. They stumble upon this house on the coast of Cornwall, the haunted shores of Cornwall, and then they sort of fall in love with it and buy it. And of course, it turns out to have these sort of strange effects, you know, rooms that are always cold, strange perfumes that, that drift through the sound of somebody sobbing at night. And then they meet this young woman played by Gail Russell. This was her first film. And she is the, the daughter of the people who lived in this house. She actually lived in the house as a child and then had this kind of tragic, you know, scandalous, tragic thing happen in her family with a, with a love triangle between her father, her mother, and her father's mistress. And, and there was somebody fell off a cliff and, you know, but it's so it's, she's got this sort of mystery in her past and she's lost her parents and she's drawn to the house 
you know, she's in this sort of, you know, it sort of puts this spell on her. And, and there are two ghosts, one of which is malevolent and one of which is sort of benign. And it's, there's this wonderful, the whole sort of secret of the story is which, who the ghosts are and what the real, this ultimately reveals the kind of truth of the story of what happened to her parents. Um, but first of all, it, it just visually is wonderful. The, the cinematographer is Charles Lang and he just does fantastic things with lighting. You know, it's all candlelight and lamps and this sort of flickering watery lights and shadows. And it's, it's, the director didn't want, he wanted to not show the ghost at all. And he was overruled by the studio. They insisted that he finally sort of produce this ghost at the end. But for the most part, it, it's very much like Val Luton. You know, everything is done with suggestions. And a lot of it is done through the performances. And especially Gail Russell, who is an actress I really like. And she always brought this quality of, of sadness and, and a sort of haunted quality I mean, in, in films like Moonrise. And this, in this film, it's, it's sort of, that's what her character is all about. But I feel like she brought this quality to almost everything she did. And she was a sort of a, you know, had a tragic story off screen. Um, but she's incredibly beautiful. But, but just somehow this woman who is, who's haunted all her life by this tragic story that she doesn't fully understand. And she's, she's kind of being, being, it's controlling her and you know the the Ray Milan character is is trying to save her from from this and it also has a, a great score um, written by Victor Young it produced this what became the song Stella by Starlight um, the, there are no words to it in the movie it later had lyrics added but so it's the it's that total effect again of the 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 sound the the visual effects and um, also working in several registers of have having some kind of light, you know, comedy, this this kind of of heavy melodrama, and then a romance, all um, all sort of working together, and and it, it is quite quite chill, you know, it, it has some real eerie, chilling moments, but it's like Curse of the Cat People. It's about a child who is haunted by a parent, which I think is really interesting. You know, a child trying to sort of reach a lost parent. Um, and that's um, a particularly sort of poignant version of the ghost story. I was hoping somebody would bring up Curse of the Cat People. It's such a strange, beautiful movie. Um, but yeah, uninvited. when I think of Uninvited, it's Stella by Starlight. And I and I, I have forgotten that you don't actually hear the lyrics in the film because it's, you do hear the the title though. I mean, it is Castella is the name of Gal Russell's character. Mm. So he and and it's it's specifically that he is sort of writing this about the way she looks in this almost too dark to see her kind of lighting. The way that that music just drifts through that house and drifts through your consciousness with that film is, I mean, that's the whole movie for me. It really plays, it's fun. So in the upcoming issue, I can say, I actually, yeah. I wrote a little bit about um, music in the picture of Dorian Gray and, and how I actually can't, I can't associate, I can't think of the film without associating those those songs, so that the, the way the Angela Lansbury song is used, the way the Chopin is used, and for the uninvited, Stella by Starlight is it's it's completely identified with the film. I can't separate the two. It's so beautiful. Yeah, look for it in your 
upcoming film comments. Sorry, that was a little plug. No, <laughs> no, it's good. Well, I, 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 I just wanted to talk really quickly about. Uh, I guess I, should, I have a couple of movies I want to talk about, but I'll just talk about it. I guess a kind of a light, <laughs> maybe insubstantial movie, uh, the Canterville Ghost, which actually Sheila O'Malley just wrote about. Uh, so maybe I won't go on too much about it. it it's, I mean, this is a this is a movie that's an adaptation of um, a piece by Oscar Wilde, and uh, it's it's been transferred or, or adapted for World War II in the sense that there's like a haunted house and it's haunted by this cowardly ghost uh, who actually, because of the makeup, kept on making reminding me of the cowardly lion, but maybe that was just me, played by Charles Lawton, and. Um, what they've done is that he's haunting a house that's been being used as a place for American soldiers to crash. But of course, they immediately run into Charles Lawton, who's, who's, who's haunting the place because he, you know, it's a long story as hauntings often are. But basically, uh, you know, in centuries past, uh, he, he fled a duel uh, involving the family honor uh, of the Canterville family honor, and his father walled him up in the walls of the of the castle, um, rather than you know admit that his son had fled a duel, um, and then consequently, you know he he took up residence there as a ghost and haunts the place and will haunt the haunt the place until a kinsman of his, you know, kind of does a brave thing. So this is actually the yeah. same story as the ghost goes west. Oh, essentially, the, is it? the okay, Rene Claire, which oh, is there's a 30s film. Yes, well, I would say I, I I think I mentioned that there are I mean there are several 30s comedies mm. and and the Ghost Goes West is definitely a comedy, but it's okay. it's about a American family that buys a Scottish castle and the castle is haunted by this ghost played by Robert Donat who was killed in while he, he was killed in a very, um, you know, despicable way while sort of re- running away from a battle um, because he's only interested in, in womanizing. And his, <laughs> he, the curse is that he has to haunt this castle until a, a, you know, a member of his clan proves the, you know, clan honor. And so Robert right. Donat also plays the, the, you know, descendant of the ghost. Oh. Um, and... The, as the, the family buys this castle and ships it to America, this is Eugene Paulette playing this, you know, typical sort of crass American tycoon. They, they buy, they, they're going to ship this castle to, you know, Florida and reconstruct it, and the ghost has to go with it. Um, but it has this wonderful touch that, um, you know, there's a young woman. They, they, of course, Eugene Paulette has a, a, you know, comely young daughter. And the Robert Donat as the modern character is very timid and sort of, you know, he does, he's poor and he feels he, you know, doesn't, isn't really in a position to, to court her, but the ghost is very dashing and very romantic. And so she keeps encountering the ghost and then thinking that he is, that he is the, you know, man that she knows and not being confused by why sometimes he's very, you know, romantic and uh, bold and other times he's very kind of mousy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> it sounds really like a very similar yeah, um, premise. I, I wonder if that's also drawing on the wild a bit somehow. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this basically turns into like a culture clash comedy, British and English and a lot of like army, army jokes, <laughs> you know? And I mean, what's a lot of it's just kind of silly because the, the lady of the house is currently like a six year old girl. So she comes in to like greet all the soldiers and they're all expecting, you know, some, someone a bit older anyway. So it's just more of a, more of a comedy, but it's just kind of funny because it's, it's, it ends up being like a culture clash also between 
like aristocracy and democracy and the absurdity that the like the person in power in this house is a little girl solely by fact of her birth and all the soldiers are kind of like these you know knockabout you know ordinary guys um and i don't know there's but then they learn that she actually knows the value of democracy so i don't know it's it's like at one point they show up the ghost by talking about democracy um and it's kind of funny to think of this as like a war effort kind of movie or wartime kind of film but um i it was it was interesting seeing it in in that light yeah well i think there are a number of these films from that period um are are sort of playing on this uh you know, modernity versus the past and the different, I mean, the ghost goes West also this sort of the difference between the modern person and the, and the, you know, person from hundreds of years ago and that this, and, and a sense sometimes of sort of loss and that, and the, the culture clash between the sort of the crass modern people and, and the older, and that that's very much what Sylvie and the Phantom is about. This is, maybe I can just talk about it briefly since it, it still is sort of fitting very much into this period in the forties. It's from 1946. Um, it's by Claude Auton Lara. Um, it was one of a series of these sort of comedies he did, but all with somewhat more serious elements um, with a wonderful actress named Odette Joyeuse. Um, who's very charming, and she always plays these kind of young, enchanting young girls. Um, so, you know, she's she's living in this this estate. She has this kind of lifelong, you know, crush on this portrait of this romantic figure called the White Hunter. Um, and but her family's penniless, and they're going to sell this portrait. Um, so it's that same sense of the sort of the the old family that's that's having to kind of divest itself of of their, um, you know, the trappings of their history. And the ghost of this, of this sort of emerges from the portrait. It is actually, the ghost is played by Jacques Tati. It was in his first uh, feature appearance. He's kind of unrecognizable. I mean, he's mm. not doing really a comic performance. And he's, he's throughout appears as this kind of semi-transparent Phantom. They did this elaborate thing with building two sets and having him on one set and all the other actors in the other set, and then using this optical effect to sort of project him onto. Wow. It's quite well done, um, and it and it you know it it is largely a comedy because then the, her father gets this idea of hiring someone to impersonate this ghost, um, and and due to sort of various um, misunderstandings, you wind up with several guys all walking around in sheets. And, you know, confusion ensuing and, and her having various encounters with different men, several of whom are all sort of in love with her and she can't tell which is which and they're all under these sheets. Um, but then the ghost, it's, but, but it also has this real wistfulness about the ghost sort of being uh, shunted aside. And, and it's a ghost that can't make itself seen or heard by anyone. It's a completely silent performance. And it's sort of about her you know, coming of age and moving on from having this romantic attachment to this, this historical figure to, you know, an involvement with a mod, you know, real young man. Um, but the ghost is always accompanied by this lovely sort of pan flute, wistful musical theme. It's a very, very charming film that, that is a sort of comedy and romance intermingled. Um, and and also that that sort of a culture clash because it winds up at this party where all these kind of you know people are confronted by this ghost. Yeah, 
And also recently made available, I believe, right? Because it's on the Eclipse set. It is on the Eclipse set. I I actually watched it on the soon-to-be-late lamented Filmstruck. So watch it there while you have the chance. But yes, it is on the Criterion Eclipse set of the four Auton Lara occupation films. Speaking of ghosts. Yeah. Yes, we got the news. The news of Filmstruck struck us today. So Ghosts, the ghost of streaming past. Well, uh, I think we're going to take a little a little break now. It's very tiring talking about the undead, uh, but we'll be right back. And we're back, and I think maybe we're going to try talking. We've been kind of circling in the '40s now, and also in you know a classic American film. But of course, there are thriving and terrifying ghost traditions in other cinemas, and and Michael, I think you brought one you wanted to talk about. Um, Yeah, well, kind of like I was saying earlier about ghost stories that aren't quite ghost stories, which you could say about Portrait of Jenny and Vertigo. You could also say that about the the film that I've picked, which is Onibaba, which is a 1964 uh, film by Kaneda Shindo. And this is just one of my favorite horror films in general. I think that it's it's sort of... um, a terrifying film for for many reasons and I you can read it in many different ways and it's again debatable whether what you're seeing is a ghost story but it it has all of the proper elements for a, a ghost story to, to to be interpreted I'll put it that way um, but also it's great I think it's important for us to talk about um, Japanese cinema here to move away from when we move away from the 40s and, and when we generally move away from um, American films because you know, there's such a history of Japanese folklore and folk tales that are built around um, a, around ideas of ghosts and what they mean, what they represent, and what demonic forces are and what they represent. And Onibaba takes place in the 14th century, I believe, and it takes place during a time of intense civil war. And it's um, it's based on a Buddhist parable, and it's it apparently, and it's also very uh, it's very much like a chastising punishing type of parable but i think shindo brings it into a different realm and i think that has a lot to do with the way that he views characters it's really um kind of a minimal mood piece and it takes place amidst these amazing swaying tall grasses and it's this quite feral mother-daughter duo and what they're doing to scrape by and survive in this time of extreme deprivation is that they are ambushing and killing samurai who pass through their area stealing their their armor and whatever belongings they have and then dumping their bodies into this pit <laughs> they have i don't know if they dug the pit or if the pit just exists i think there's an inference that the pit's been there since the beginning of time um but they're definitely <laughs> using the pit to <laughs> dispose of their crimes and it's a really disturbing premise and you're completely aligned with the perspectives and points of view of this mother daughter relationship. And what sort of happens is this, uh, the daughter falls in love with a returning soldier and the mother is very alarmed by this relationship and tries to wedge herself between them. And so for a lot of the running time and nothing supernatural necessarily is happening. It's really all about this kind of strange uh, triangle and there's a lot of eroticism and there's a lot of uh, rage and seething emotions. But then at one point there is a, um, a samurai who has returned from the war who's passing through like so many have, but he's a masked samurai and he has this demonic mask that is used in um, a lot of 
that apparently is based on a mask used in no theater and it's called a Hanya mask and it's supposed to represent a jealous female demon but this male soldier is wearing it of course they go through the motions so she's the mother is a little terrified of of seeing this mask she still kills him steals his armor and the mask or she tries to steal the mask at first deep inside this dark pit and what happens from there becomes a sort of cautionary tale where the mother uses the mask to scare her own daughter away from having this illicit affair pretending like she is a demon who has come to punish her and this creates all sorts of other you know, <laughs> uh, falling out, I guess, fallings out, what's the word I'm looking for, um, in the family. Family <laughs> discord. Fantastic nuclear family. Um, but what's actually really interesting is that, um, well, Kaneto Shindo said that the mask, what happens underneath the mask, because there's also a whole thing about what is actually going on under the mask, uh, what happens to the skin of the people who wear it is supposed to represent what happened in Hiroshima and the atomic bombings. And, so there's always this, there's, there's a sympathy that runs through the film at the same time that you realize you're watching a story about these female, these demons doing these terrible things. But again, you're so aligned with the perspective and you can't possibly be aligned with anyone else's perspective in the film. Everybody's out for themselves. This ghost who comes through with this samurai mask is potential, potent, sorry, I should say potentially a ghost, potentially just a man, but it's, it kind of sets them off into this path where everyone is becoming a demon everyone's becoming a ghost and it's really the situation it's it's the it's the it's the economic reality of their of their world that has made them into these beasts and i think that it actually creates quite a bit of sympathy for these characters well so talking about japanese movies i mean we have to talk about they they have there was i believe a, a specific type of ghost in Japan called onryo which are vengeful spirits that that return and particularly of women and um the other shindo film of course is kuroneko oh, which great. Um, is also about a mother and a daughter um who are murdered by marauding raped and murdered by marauding samurai and then seemingly sort of return as these vengeful spirits who lure men and and kill them and that's an, you know, this is, this is an idea that I think exists in many cultures. I mean, it's basically very similar to, the, you know, the, the ballet Giselle, uh, one of the great classical Western ballets in which there are these creatures called the willies who are the spirits of young women who have died after being betrayed by men. And so they haunt these forests, they capture male travelers and force them to dance until they die. And the idea of that sort of women have so little power in life and are so often the victims of, of male violence and, and other forms of abuse that then they return as these terrifying spirits who exact some kind of revenge. Um, you also find that in, in the first segment of Kwaidan, the Kobayashi's uh, omnibus of four sort of ghost stories um, by Lafcadio Hearn, The Black Hair, which is about a man who is meets the the spirit of, of the wife that he had abandoned long before. And it's one of the most, to me, sort of terrifying visual effects of a ghost because she basically is just this black hair that, that strangles him. But that, that seems to be a powerful thing in Japanese culture, although it's a completely different thing from Ugetsu in which, you know, ultimately the wife returns as a ghost in order to forgive, you know, and sort of forgives her husband for having abandoned her. But, but again, it goes back to what you said about um, 
sympathy, that these are terrifying figures. And yet at the same time, we're sort of, we understand that, that they have some sort of some sort of justification for the way that they're behaving or that they represent some kind of, um, I don't know about justice, but some kind of, you know, consequences of things that have happened in life. Yeah. And again, like, and, and the fact that they, uh, the mother character tries to create this agency for herself by becoming a demon, becoming a spirit, quite literally when she puts the mask on. And I don't want to spoil what happens in the final act of the film for those who haven't seen it, but it's, it's when it, it, it's when kind of the emotional stakes are raised and when the supernatural stakes are raised. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like wish fulfillment in some way for, for justice being done in, in some way. Um, well, I mean, along the same lines of, of a little bit, not making amends or, or, or justices necessarily, but just going back to an earlier idea we were talking about where of, of a giant emotion that, that isn't really dealt with. I mean, I, I watched The Changeling relatively recently and, you know, that stars George C. Scott. And that's a movie for me that's just about survivor guilt, basically. Um, and the, I mean, the, the ghost in that case isn't necessarily, you know, it, he, he happens to somehow be, <laughs> to have gravitated towards a ghost that, that is also dealing with some terrible injustice. Um, I mean, for Joyce Scott's character, uh, who actually works at Lincoln Center, I should say, um, the changeling um, starts, uh, one, one of the early shots are of him crossing in front of the, the fountain plaza, actually, which gave me a start when I watched it, because uh, it's similar to the path I sometimes take to work. Um, anyway, so what happens to him is that he goes to the country, you know, for a trip with his family, and uh, while, you know, one point... Uh, they, you know, they've parked or something and he's gone to, I guess there's car trouble. I can't remember exactly. And, but of course they're separated and while they're separated, he has to watch his wife and child die <laughs> because of a, you know, 18 wheeler or something that careens, of course. very over the top. It's over the top, but uh, it's still death. pretty disturbing um, just because you're, you know, you're, you're put in the perspective of like a eyewitness to, to this very vivid traffic accident. I'm also taking driving license lessons right now, I should mention. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so that happens. And of course, he's plunged into deep depression. And what does he do being completely depressed? What better thing to do than to take residence in a giant spooky house on the other side of the country, uh, which is what he does. And that's the house that is, you know, haunted and, you know, in a way he can't even understand. And, you know, gradually uh, it's, it, it, he realizes that it's like a, a, a child's ghost uh, that's there, um, which often seem to be sometimes the like nastiest ones. Mm. I don't know, Imogen, would you want to <laughs> weigh in on the, the nastiness of child ghosts? Or <laughs> it's an, that's interesting also if you think about, we're sort of talking about why, the different reasons why ghosts return, mm, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's this kind of idea like in, in Portrait of Jenny and in a way in Ugetsu with the ghost princess that people who have not been able to achieve something in life get to sort of come back, um, you know, and that, that's the sort of romantic version. And then there's the vengeful version. Yeah. Um, and perhaps with, with child ghosts, there's a, 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 a vengeance for not having been able to live to grow up, but right. also a sense of sort of sadness and, and, and bafflement that makes them particularly... Yeah poignant but speaking not of not of child ghosts but of children and of course children are often really important in ghost movies i mean whether they're the ones who see the ghosts they're often represented as being sort of able to see things that adults can't see mm -hmm. um, and being perhaps the most likely to believe in ghosts 
um, or whether they are the ghosts. But we we have somehow gotten almost to the end of this podcast without mentioning one of our favorite and the greatest of all ghost movies, The Innocents, mm. um, yes. based upon Henry James's Turn of the Screw, which is one of the most richly ambiguous, you know, are there really ghosts? Are they all in the, the mind of this governess? Um, it's, you know, a governess comes to uh, take care of these children in a country home. She starts hearing these kind of disturbing stories about these former servants. Um, and, you know, it's never quite clear what happened, but the children have these kind of vague memories of it. And, and she starts to see or experience these ghosts and believe that the ghosts are menacing these children and then that she has to protect the children. But it's one of the most psychologically sort of complex and um, just creates this incredible feeling of, kind of the, the claustrophobia of being in a sort of disturbed mind. And I think it works com- perfectly well whether you take it to be that the ghosts are real or not. But But the movie is really atmospheric in a way using a lot of different aesthetic qualities than we're used to it's it's it is black and white but it's a widescreen movie a lot of it is there's a lot of sunshine a lot of sort of big overblown roses and these sort of images um, that are very different from typical kind of haunted house images and there's there's a a definitely an, an eroticism about it that's completely submerged but yeah, I was thinking about um, the widescreen before you said it. I, like, what separates this from probably most of the things we've talked about is that the use of the cinemascope frame, so brilliantly used, so that things are always happening in corners of the frame that you don't expect. It's so, and the lighting is so uh, specific to certain parts of the frame. And I was, I was, I was thinking about how there was a film that I had just rewatched recently, The Haunting, from two years later, the Robert Wise film, which is a good example of. Um, the frame not used particularly well. Uh, I think, you know, there was just the onslaught of scope framed films uh, and a lot of them black and white in the 60s. And you can tell the difference between somebody who knew what to put in that frame and who didn't know what to put in that frame. And The Innocence, who was directed by Jack Clayton, is is just an example of the best possible use of 235. And... Um, the haunting is just, uh, just, it's just like overly set designed. It's, it's, that's the based on the Shirley Jackson haunting of Hill house. And it's, it's, everything is brocaded and patterned and it's almost like this claustrophobic choking feeling you have looking at the screen. Whereas the innocence knows where to keep things empty and where to actually put objects and where to put people. But also a great, great performance by Deborah Carr. Oh yes. Um, and that's, you know, performances are, are, it's, it really is sort of ultimately down to actors, whether or not they can convince you or draw you into that mood. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this with The Uninvited as well, which I talked about earlier, that there's a lot of great, you know, use of visual effects and these and sound effects and so forth. But ultimately, whether or not you are drawn into that mood of believing that there is some kind of presence there is so much down to the actors who are, are playing the people who are, ex- are mm. in some, you know, experiencing these haunted situations. And her performance is really the scariest thing <laughs> in, the, in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely the case with, with the changeling, which I, you know, I, it, it definitely, to 
works to the extent that George C. Scott is just this kind of hulking figure of like melancholy and grief in, in the movie. And, you know, being this kind of bearish masculine presence is not enough to actually deal with what he has to deal with. So he's just that kind of, the bigger he is, the bigger the void you feel in a way in, in, in that film. And then also, I mean, you know, thinking about a more recent film, Personal Shopper, I think, even though, you know, it's... Kristen Stewart is not haunting the film. She herself has this strange, like liminal presence to her, to her that that keys in really well into the kind of more postmodern idea of, of a ghost. Because there's there's an actual ghostly presence in that film, done in kind of very traditional ways. But then it's also just about some kind of general specter of like bodilessness and ubiquity, but you know not being anywhere at the same time. And her own existence as a character, Kristen Stewart's character, like being someone else's shopper, living someone else's life. Um, so she, yeah, in that case, she's, she's also very effective as, as a performer. Yeah, I think Personal Shopper and A Ghost Story, the David Lowry film that you mentioned, Imogen, are really good examples of uh, contemporary films that um, extend these legacies brilliantly. And Ghost Story had a quality that is almost unique, perhaps, in that it is essentially told from the point of view of the ghost which is very unusual, that it's not about the experience of the people who are living in this haunted house. It's about what would it be like to be a ghost existing in this one space over sort of, you know, centuries. And the, you actually start to see the, the living people sort of through his eyes as these people who are sort of passing through this space. And he's living in this completely different time. And of course, I mean, we, we ought to mention the fact that, that that the choice made in that movie was to have Casey Affleck be covered with a sheet. Um, that's how they represent yeah. the ghost. And it, to me, it, it really worked. And the sort of blankness of it um, was very effective. But it's definitely, you know, they, they chose to go with this, this kind of Halloween costume iconography of the ghost. And I want to say that that ties into something I was thinking. The way that that sheet is used, the way that the, the face in a ghost story, the way that depending on where he's angled in the shot and how the shot our scene plays out, you can read whatever you want onto those two kind of black holes cut into the sheet. It actually reminds yeah. me a little bit of Onibaba in the sense that the mask, the way that no mask was originally designed for stage is that from different angles, it would look different. And the movie does that really well. As Onibaba does that well. Because when I was watching, I was thinking, did they use multiple masks? Maybe they were a series of different masks. But it really is because the mask is designed to look sad from one angle, frightening from one angle, angry from one angle. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and I mean, Ghost Stories, yeah, just the sheet and the, um, I don't know, there's something about the conceit of that movie that reminds me of like a music video in a way, um, or like a Gondry film, but just all slowed down. Um, and, and, and having a, a guy in such like an archetypal sheet makes me think of some sort of photography series, you know, mm -hmm. where you position someone and just took shots of them over time. But he, he kind of transmutes that kind of more gimmicky thinking into something a bit more, more profound. And that, that for me is kind of part of the surprise of it, what he, where he's able to take a premise that, that sounds maybe a little gimmicky and turn it into, to, to, yeah, to something that really sneaks up in you in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it does ultimately have a quality that is that this thing we we keep talking about the sense of some kind of yearning that is unfulfilled and to me the thing that that worked that made that film the most affecting was this sense that he 
you know, he's, he can't, there's something he's trying to get, you know, where he's trying to get this note out of the wall that his wife left, you know, sort of hidden in the wall and he can't get it. And this, the sense again of, of, of it's about the idea that a, an emotion could be so strong that it, it survives. And there's this moment where he, he sees this, he's communicating with his ghost in the other house, you know, that, that next door. And she says, you know, I'm waiting for someone. And he says, who? And she says, I don't remember. And the idea that, that almost like the feeling of longing or of not being able to let go of something could, could survive even remembering what that thing is was what I thought really was interesting about the sense of time in that film and that sense of what, what it is. And, and I loved the fact that it's like the ghost himself who is haunted. It's nobody else seems to even be aware that he's there, but yeah. he's the one who's haunted um, in that sense of that vertigo sort of sense of something that just you can't, you, you can't escape from. And that, that is, that, that works is so much our feeling about a lot of movies, which is probably why we like these films so much. We're all haunted by time. I was going to say we're all haunted by consciousness. I think we're just haunted. <laughs> <laughs> it was all the Henry James. That's what it was. Um, well, I think that brings us to the end of our special spooky ghosts edition of the podcast. Of course, we could probably do another ghosts podcast. I mean, we've only scratched the surface or scratched the wall for the note, so to speak. Um, but happy Halloween to all our listeners. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. And thank you both. been listening to the film comment podcast with music by greg Angie. you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher film comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the film society of lincoln center since 1962 film comment has featured in-depth features critical analysis and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world visit us online at filmcomment.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to film comment or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle. <laughs>